Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. In the Fox poll, they asked people, who is more competent? Who's got, whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you not do the hard, Well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the last... it has a picture, and it says, what's that? And it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy. But I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you. You couldn't answer. You couldn't answer. All right. What's the question? Many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. OK. okay? You, and you I answered all 35 questions correctly. <laughs> Somebody ought to tell him there were only 30 questions. <laughs> I think he just took a competency test. And uh, it's troubling, that interview. Troubling. Hey, man, how are you doing, Axe? Oh, my goodness. I I'm good, Murphy. And guess who we have with us today? Oh, a great guest. A legend in American politics. The great Donna Brazile is with us today, an old friend from way back. Way back. And so good to see you. Uh, what, what did you make of you? You're a Fox News uh, personality now. What'd you make of that interview? I thought that was one of the best uh, interviews ever uh, in terms of uh, interviewing the president. Chris did his homework. He came prepared for the pushback. He came prepared to challenge the president. And I appreciated the fact that not only was Chris prepared, but once again, the president failed the, the most important test, and that is the test of leadership and leading a diverse country. So Kudos to Chris Wallace uh, for doing such a, a great professional interview. And let us see how the American people react to the test on November 3rd. I don't know about the test of leadership. I think that that, that we can certainly talk about that. Uh, but there were times when he was uh, barely passing the test of, 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 of sanity, it seemed. He kind of—and and, and, and Wallace was— uh, I, I agree with Donna. I mean, I thought that was a, an outstanding interview. But he challenged him, you know, on all of he was fact checking Trump in front of Trump. And Trump was very troubled by that. Yeah, no, it was incredible. Wallace was great. Wallace has that crisp, excuse me, sir, you know, kind of that old school in yes. your face, but but respectful technique, which Trump is just not handled for. In fact, I'm with the great authority of Hacks on Tap, you know, respected worldwide in journalism. I think I'm going to award Chris Wallace the old Roger Mudd trophy for most revealing presidential interview ever. We all remember the Teddy Kennedy, why are you running dead pause interview of Mudd? This was a hundred times worse than that. And I really give Wallace credit. He is the first guy that's managed to really kind of pin Trump down. And, you know, maybe Trump's declined and that's part of it, but it was clear as day watching that. You got to wonder, you know, what it's like in the Oval Office with this guy every day. Yeah. So, Donna, why do you think he did the interview? I mean, it's not a secret that Chris Wallace is very, very tough. Why do you think the White House agreed to that interview? I'm sure that they're looking at the president's poll numbers and they wanted to go on a, a, a network that they trust to get their message out. But I tell you, I don't think the president was prepared for that interview. He was not prepared for Chris 
to come with some really tough questions. And, and when you saw the president motion into his staff to go back and yeah. get documents. Yeah. Says, get, me, get me the charter. Yeah. The Karen yeah, moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, he, he was not ready. I used to, you know, remind candidates, if you're not ready to face the nation or meet the press, don't go on those shows. And clearly the president wasn't ready for a one-on-one interview with Chris Wallace. He blamed it on the weather. You heard that? He blamed it on the heat. He was the one who wanted the interview outside. They were supposed to do the interview inside. And I thought somehow, I guess he thought that it, it would show him uh, in uh, some manly feat to be doing this tough interview in a hundred degree temperature, but it seemed, it, it, it seemed ludicrous. Uh, you know, someone told me that um, they wanted to road test him against Wallace uh, because Wallace is, you know, a likely candidate to be a moderator in the presidential mm-hmm. debates and they just want to see if that's the case uh, they may not want chris to be a moderator <laughs> oh and it's not the like debates. they don't hold grudges too <laughs> yeah i'm yeah. sure that's an issue internally and i'm sure some press staffer who told him what a great idea this was is hanging upside down in the basement uh but you know beyond the bad comedy of trump being just so erratic and and unsteady in the interview you know, the fastball stuff about COVID, I think, was really revealing. Should we listen to a little? Yeah, let's do that. But we have more tests by far than any country in the world. But, sir, testing is up 37%. Well, that's 30, good. I understand. Cases are up 194%. It isn't just that testing has gone up. It's that the virus has spread. The positivity rate has increased. There, many the, the of virus those is cases, worse than it was. Many of those cases are young people that would heal in a day. They have the sniffles, and we put it down as a test. Many of them, don't forget, I guess it's like 99.7%. People are going to get better, and in many cases, they're going to get better very quickly. We go out and we look, and then on the news, look, if you go back to the news, all of your, even your wonderful competitors, you'll see cases are up. Well, cases are up. Many of those cases shouldn't even be cases. Cases are up because we have the best testing in the world, and we have the most testing. No country has ever done what we've done in terms of testing. We are the envy of the world, they call, and they say the most incredible job anybody's done is our job on testing. First of all, we're we're not the envy of the world. The world is scratching its head. The world is dealing with this crisis a lot better uh, than we are, with uh, with the exception of a handful uh, of countries. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is why, you guys, he is in the hole that he's in. This it is incredible uh, that he persists in this denial. Now, he's having a briefing today. Uh, he's re, re, he's resuming his uh, his his COVID briefings, which were so such such a, a boon to him in the past. I don't, I don't know whose idea that was, but and maybe he'll change his view. But this this is exactly why he's in trouble. He's telling people what they see, what they're experiencing isn't real. He's dismissing what is a crisis in many of the major communities in this country, and uh, I, I just. It's hard for me to understand how he persists. The failure of the president to seize the moment months ago to get a get a, a, a put together a comprehensive strategy of dealing with this this virus, of giving uh, governors and mayors and others the the uh, tools and the resources to fight this virus. I can tell you, as someone who has 
seen so many people suffer. And of course, I've known so many people who have passed away. COVID is not the sniffles. It's not the cough. It's not the season. This takes your body. It, it puts your body almost in reverse. My niece, uh, who is 35 years old, uh, she came home, she had a test, and she was down for the count. Luckily, she has been able to get back on her feet. She has recovered, my first cousin, but I have so many other relatives, and I've had friends who have died from it because it is a dangerous virus, and the president has never taken this virus seriously. Murphy, if you're, if you're uh, as Donna points out, you know, the, the emergency rooms and, and, and ICUs are filled with young people uh, who who have uh, who who are facing this now? But you, if you're his strategists, if you're a strategist for uh, Trump, uh, how do you let him go out there and persist in this? Um, because it's clearly creating this incredible dissonance that's making him look. You know, you could see it in the polls over the weekend. Uh, thir- you know, a third of the country uh, gives him. Uh, winning marks on how he's handling this virus and it's dragging his whole number down. Well, to your question, it's impossible to be a strategist for Trump because he doesn't have a strategy, just has instincts. And he has these habits he learned in the tabloid media culture of New York City back when back when he was originally doing his shtick. And that is when he grabs on to some alternate reality, he convinces himself that it's true, another sign of like craziness. And he just pounds away. I mean, this testing thing is wet streets cause rain, and he just keeps going to it. <laughs> it's not working. His numbers are collapsing. So if you work for him, you know, I think what most of them are trying to do is survive, try to work on the stuff he's not involved with, like ads and everything, and, you know, try to cart a few buckets of money out the door when nobody's looking in the great par scale tradition. Yeah, there, there's no strategy. Well, they've done a lot of that. They, there's a a, a a billion dollars spent already. Yeah, yeah. But so, my point is, I don't know what I'd do. I'd, I'd tell him we're going to attack Biden as crazy. I'd tell him to put on a straitjacket for a great tweet, lock the buckles and have him walked out the back door. That's what I personally would do. And we wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't see him to election day again. But, you know, it's an unsolvable problem because he's not, and he doesn't listen to anybody. He just works on instinct and he's going to keep repeating this stuff, getting more bitter and more crazy. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. I've never seen, and I'd be curious about Don or, or UX, have you ever seen a candidate in your career as stubborn at clinging to stuff that's not working and not true and doesn't do any course correction at all? I never have. No, no. I mean, I think it's pathological uh, in his case. So we, we know what he, his plan is to pull himself out of, uh, out of this, and that is uh, its race and its culture. And uh, some of the most uh, some of the most interesting moments in that very interesting interview came over the subject of race. The president once again wrapped himself in the flag. Unfortunately, it was the Confederate flag. Uh, he, uh, you know, he accused uh, Biden of uh, wanting to defund police. Uh, Wallace uh, uh, fact-checked him uh, on that. Um, he, uh, he accused teachers of uh, teaching children to hate America. Uh, and, uh, that was an interesting exchange. And then he, he defended, uh, the, uh, his position that we should not change the names of, of military bases that were named for Confederate generals. And let's, let's listen to that because it was really, it was really kind of a telling exchange. 
because I think that Fort Bragg, Fort Robert and Lee, all of these forts that have been named that way for a long time, decades and decades. But the military and says they're excuse for me. this. Excuse me. I don't care what the military says. I do. I'm, I'm supposed to make the decision. Fort Bragg is a big deal. We won two world wars. Nobody even knows General Bragg. We won two world wars. Go to that community where Fort Bragg is in a great state. I love that state. Go to go to the community. Say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? I think Fort George Patton, Fort Eisenhower. <laughs> I can think of a few names that would play just fine in North Carolina. Yeah, but you know exactly what he was doing there, Donna. Yeah, he's playing the... The oldest uh, playbook in American politics is one of using race as, as a divide, as a, a cultural sphere. I don't think it has the, the type of following that it once had in large part because the American people are rejecting it. Uh, you see the polls, 51% of the American people support Black Lives Matter. That's up from 36% just a few years ago. You see the majority of white Americans believe that race relations has gotten worse under this president. So I think the president is 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 using some of the most important moments of his presidency to divide us rather than to bring us together and to heal. There's no question about that, but he's doing it because he thinks that it's going to help him. And I will say, I was kind of surprised by the Washington Post poll this morning because they said uh, the the poll showed that um, uh, that people uh, that particularly white Americans were uh, were were not into uh, taking down uh, statues. White Americans were uh, less apt to uh, believe that uh, we should rename these uh, that we should rename these military installations. So Murphy, uh, le- leaving your own feelings out of this, do you think there's currency in this? Do you think that uh, he? he is onto something with his base uh, and with people who he wants to get back, uh, you know, fallen away Republicans, some independent voters, uh, by taking the position he's taking on these issues. Well, I think there's political energy in, in engaging the cancel culture. And I think the Democrats do fall into these cultural fights. The problem for Trump is his base doesn't count anymore. His base is the losing hand. It's the defeated army. It's a cul-de-sac of demographics. If the only grumpy old white non-college educated men could vote, Trump would be doing fine. But that's a shrinking vote. It's not enough to win. That's always been his problem. That's why I thought he was going to lose reelect for, I thought it for three years. The problem is the vote he needs is college educated white independents, Republican women in the suburbs. And these tools don't work there anymore. Part of it is demographics. The racial tension stuff does not work under 45 anymore. So again, he puts himself into a corner where he makes voters he has anyway really, really happy. But as you guys know, when you vote, you don't get extra points for a happy vote because you're, you know, you got your Confederate flag and you love this guy. So no, I think he's digging himself. Now, if he had finesse, if he could go after the culture, um, uh, the cancel culture and things like that with a lighter touch, you know, this poll and others yeah. show there's some energy there, but because of his blundering manner uh, and his overkill, no. I, I mean, I think he's going to try. He's got nothing else. But Light touch and Trump are not words that go together. But David, as someone who grew up in the segregated South, I mean, my parents, uh, before Hurricane Katrina, lived on South Jefferson Davis Parkway. 
Um, I saw my mayor, Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of my city, um, listen to the protesters, listen to the people of my great uh, beloved hometown, and he removed the Robert E. Lee Circle. Um, he removed the statue at Robert at the Circle, uh, which goes from uptown into uh, the French Quarter. I do believe that we need to have a conversation about these memorials to the old Confederacy. Many of these statues were erected during the period of Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and, 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 and we all know why they were erected. They were erected because they wanted to make a statement about, you know, keeping the right. South as it was. Right. Right. So we, we have to have this conversation. And Donald Trump is on the wrong side of history. I'm totally with you on this. Oh, I know. I'm totally know. with you on this. And I, you know, I think what those statues and the, that flag symbolize uh, is uh, is dreadful and 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 more than offensive to uh, to uh, to African Americans and and to to other Americans to many other Americans. There's no doubt about that. The question is just as a strategy because he you know this is not he's not making emotional judgments, sentimental judgment. He's just like he's making a crass. He thinks that there's addition and subtraction. I doubt very seriously he knows anything about these men, anything about their past. Yeah. Oh, that's a safe bet. Yeah. Because Donald Trump doesn't study. He doesn't yeah. read. <laughs> yes. I, I don't think he's been cracking the history books. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And, and let me just clarify. What, what I'm saying is there's, uh, you know, I am, uh, my relatives fought with the Union. Few of them were pulled right off the boats from Ireland, given a rifle, and sent south. But clearly, I, I have no sympathy for that. Why don't we put Rommel statues up next to them? I mean, I, I don't buy any of this Confederate heritage stuff. Museums can cover that. But my larger yes. point is when Christopher Columbus statues and stuff like that are knocked down, there is kind of an edge of this where there's cultural opportunity with white middle class voters. I don't think Trump will do well with it because he's Trump. He gets in the way. He goes right for the stupid part of this. But I think his better move is this law and order stuff, which is kind of a cousin of the of the tension. Well, it is. But there, too, you know, uh, what we see now is. Um, and I really think we should lift this up because I think this is not, you know, you pay attention to this. He has sent, he sent a, a 150 or so agents of the Department of Homeland Security into Portland where there have been demonstrations and protests for 50 days. By all accounts, they were snatching people off the street and, you know, without any justification or due process, throwing them in vans, holding them for two hours, releasing them. Uh, they were unidentified. They weren't wearing uniforms, you know, and now they uh, promised to do the same going into Chicago and other cities. I think this is his play. I mean, he is what happened in Portland was they actually inflamed violence in Portland, by all accounts. I think the, this is the battle the president wants, and he's going to try and inflame these cities. And I think this is his play for those suburban voters. He's trying to create a conflict totally. that will that will drive them back to him. This is his caravan strategy. We all remember the caravan strategy in 2018 when he built all this tension and anxiety about the caravan is coming, no one's safe, lock up your kids until the day after the election when it wasn't a crisis anymore. And he, he lost for this. I think this one will be a losing strategy too, but it is clearly a strategy and we ought to recognize it for what it is. We also have to be very careful how 
uh, we respond to this because, as you know, David, when you when you bring in unidentified military or federal agents into uh, a community, uh, they have no relationship with people in the community, have no relationship with the electors. This can increase the tension, and of course, it could bring about the kind of violence that uh, the president is out there saying is happening. So I'm worried about uh, the president. Uh, decision to drive these agents into these major cities across the country. Well, it also trips the wire. I mean, if you're a classic conservative, and I like to think I am, you are cautious about federal power. I mean, we have governors and we have mayors for a reason. You're a vintage conservative as well. Well aged, definitely well aged. In an oak barrel, soon enough. Uh, But no, my point is, you don't. You look like an old barrel, Murphy. (laughs) No, you're here all week. Tip your server. He's distinguished with that new beard. <laughs> all right, come on, X. I'm yeah. trying to educate you here. Let me let me finish. Okay, okay all so right. So get, get, get your pen out. My point is, <laughs> you, you don't put federal power into municipalities at the drop of a hat, particularly when, when nobody asks you to do it. This is why we have governors and mayors. And look, I'm I right. I'm not a big fan of this Portland enclave, but it's an Oregon Portland problem. It's got nothing to do with the Fed. So you're right. He's using the slimmest possible and, frankly, I think kind of illegitimate pretext to create another campaign issue because he knows he's getting killed on on everything else. But it's incredibly cynical and, you know, vintage Trump. Yeah, you know, they were sent into Portland under the pretext of protecting federal yeah. facilities. That That is the pretext in which they were sent into Portland. I don't really know. Uh, and I'm eager to hear what the justification is for sending them to Chicago. There's no doubt that there's a violence problem in Chicago. There's been a violence problem in Chicago for uh, some time uh, related to gangs and guns. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know that there are federal facilities that are under threat. So what is his justification without consulting local <clears throat> authorities for sending, uh, you know, these these. Uh, ununiformed, unidentified agents uh, into cities. This is, you know, it's dangerous, uh, but it's, but again, I think we just need to hold it up for what it is. It's a strategy and people ought to recognize it as such. And it's not a strategy to fight crime. It's a strategy to try and divide and win him vote. It's pure politics. There is one good news thing you're overlooking, which is any Fed who's sent to Cook County for more than a month will wind up voting there for the rest of their life. (laughs) But uh, putting that aside, it's another... uh, Don, if if we had a drinking game here on on tap, you you, you you would be absolutely sure to have one drink every show if you bet on him hitting Chicago on that that hoary old vote fraud thing. Well, we will all take a quick sip here and refill our mugs because we've got to go away and pay some bills. We have a new sponsor. And we'll talk about that, and then we'll be right back with our discussion. You know, Kips, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just, you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Reliefman is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with 
motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. So, guys, on this COVID issue, Congress is running out of time. At the end of the month, the uh, stimulus package and the relief package that was passed by Congress expires. I, I just don't see any way that Donald Trump is going to let them leave. Uh, and I don't think they're going to want to leave, but they're going to have to do something. They cannot not extend this uh, and create a huge crisis for people around the country. There's got to be an agreement. But he has tacked to it cuts in, in funding for testing and tracing, cuts in funding for the, for the CDC, cuts in funding for schools that don't open according to his desire to have schools open. Donna, you, you've been around Congress a long time, and you've been around politics a long time. It seems to me that the Democrats kind of have Trump over the barrel here because he cannot let them leave without passing a relief package. Look, uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the Democrats voted last month on the HEROES package. It is a very comprehensive package. It include additional resources for those frontline workers. Uh, for our hospitals, also for state and local governments. Uh, it has resources there to give the American people, especially those who have been unemployed for the last two months, an additional month or, or two of coverage. It helps with those who are at the edge of paying their mortgage or their rent. So, And, and also, as you well know, uh, there's money in there for the upcoming election. So I think the HEROES Act is a great package. And if the, the Senate can agree to at least uh, look into that package and, and help the American people, uh, that, that will be a plus plus, not just for Democrats, but also Republicans. It would be a great bill for the president to sign, but he won't. Well, the, he's not going to get that bill, uh, obviously. That's a, they're going to start negotiating off of that basis. But Murphy, where do you think this ends? And what do you think? This goes back to the lunacy that we talked about in the beginning. What do you think about them including cuts to the CDC and cuts in testing and tracing 
in the middle of this resurgent pandemic? Well, politically, it's a disaster. And those senators hanging on by a thread are all feeling that. So I think they are going to pass something uh, big because, you know, it's uh, it's what you do in politics when money equals political support in an election year. Uh I, I think they've got Trump boxed in. Well, there in. are also people out there who they're there are people suffering out there. Let's of course, of course, of course. It's just there's a legit fiscal argument that nobody cares about about how do we both relieve the crisis and try to avoid spending the same in real dollars that it cost to win the Second World War because we're heading for a huge debt crisis. So you know, people of good faith can try to address both, and that doesn't mean a blank check to everything. But the politics of it are a lot simpler than that. Throw money at it. There's a tremendous need. Don't ever cut anything with a title that the average voter thinks is disastrous, like CDC. But you know, Trump, they will have to maneuver to have something that looks like a bit of a pyrrhic victory for him, for him to say yes, but he's so weak politically, he's got no choice. And by the way, he's not a fiscal conservative. He doesn't care about any of the legit arguments to think through the spending. He'll he'll just want to look like a winner, look like a tough guy. And I'd be stunned if they don't pass something that looks about 85% uh, like what the Dems are looking for. I'd be stunned. They also threw a, a payroll tax cut into that bill that nobody seems to, there's not a real big constituency for that, even among Republicans. The whole thing is kind of baffling yeah. as to what they're, uh, uh, what they're up to. So we're getting close, Donna, to the conventions, but we don't know what the conventions are going to be like. You're, you're, uh, you're an old uh, hand at this. You're uh, f- official of the Democratic National Committee and so on. Like, what is this going to look like? What should we expect? Well, I've already, I'm also a, a delegate to the convention. Uh, and um, it looks as though those of us who are delegates who normally get there uh, the weekend before will be um, hosting each other, hosting our delegation right within our own jurisdiction. And we will be beamed in or uh, virtually connected into the convention each and every day, whether it's uh, attending uh, the usual meetings uh, that we typically have around the convention, our credentials process, our rules process, our platform. We'll have all of those uh, uh, events held virtually. We'll vote virtually. And of course, the vice president will go and accept the nomination in person in Milwaukee, but it will be a very smaller venue and a very small uh, attendance. Uh, Again, we're being driven by uh, the medical professionals that uh, we uh, retain to give us some uh, advice, but it's going to be a very very celebratory experience, but we will not be there to applaud in person. Let me ask you a question. Um, In in 92, Um, you know, Bill Clinton turned his, I mean, the convention was very, very important for him. Uh, the man from hope film there really redefined him for people that was on in prime time. Uh, 2008, obviously a huge thing for Obama, uh, the convention that, that, that speech in the stadium and so on. Um, this is going to look completely different. Can, uh, can a candidate get the same bounce out of what is largely going to be a produced television show i mean i'm of the view that it may be a, a an improvement not to disparage all our friends in politics who love to get their five minutes of fame <laughs> you know speaking to a half empty uh, arena but uh, uh 
I mean, are you confident that 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 Biden's going to get out of it what Biden needs to get out of it? I think so. I think uh, in addition to celebrating the spirit of America, our enduring values, having a great array of speakers and, and entertainment, I think the vice president will be able to connect with the American people. I mean, look, after all, what we see on that night when you accept the invitation, you see balloons and you see the, the candidate. And I think uh, minus the, the, the crowd. And funny hats. Yeah. Uh, you, you're going to see, a, a, you know, a, a smaller venue, a smaller audience, but you're going to have the kind of excitement that I think will give the vice president a bounce coming out of the convention that hopefully will last him through the, the following week when the Trump uh, saga starts and um, Jackson. Well, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Mur Murphy, I mean, I'm of the I'm of the view that this is a big plus potentially for Biden, especially if the networks cover as I think they are going to cover the this as a big TV show for three nights. They they have more control over what this is going to look like and can actually make a more watchable product than conventions normally are. Yeah, on paper, I think that's right. Um, you know, it, it'll be more about message, more of a TV show. And the Biden people are right and they know they got to define Joe a bit more. They should be able to profit from it. But the incredible shrinking convention thing may be here to stay. And the networks will quickly get bored. Remember, everything's postmodern now. So it's all the process. And, you know, there'll be lots of talk about how they did it around COVID. And that can crowd out the, uh, the content. But I think overall, if the Biden folks have their act together, they can profit from this. Trump, the problem will be there'll be so much process dilemma over Trump forcing it on Jacksonville. You know, we talked about, we did that poll at Republican voters against Trump, yeah. our bet.org joined the fight. And it was clear that even the Republican leaning County of Duval, Jacksonville doesn't want the convention. You have the Republican police chief out today or actually yesterday saying sheriff say, saying the same thing. So the Trump thing is going to be tripping over its own shoelaces so much that if the Dems are smart and they are, they're going to be able to do a more COVID friendly mini convention that'll get plotted. Well, the Trump thing will be lost and squabbling. So yeah, net win Biden. Yeah. They, they, they are in uh, They, they, just announced that they're they're also going to do a, ver a very slimmed down meeting and it, it sounds like even the outdoor crowd for trump's speech is going to be limited so uh, it isn't going to be what he wants you recall the 2012 convention in tampa i was uh going down there for uh, another network and uh we had to we had to post. <laughs> a great network yeah great network of course uh, uh <laughs> we had to we had to cancel the first day because of an impending hurricane and as you know, Florida yeah. in August, just like Texas and Louisiana, you know, that's a that's a very tough time to have an outdoor event. I know. Listen, we we we, you'll re we did the outdoor uh, stadium in 2008. I and I remember when David Pluff, our manager, and I went in to, to, to pitch Obama on this. He looked at us skeptically and he said, what if it rains? And we said, well, there's a 20 percent chance of rain in Colorado at that time of year. We're really confident. And he said. All right, well, let me tell you something. If it rains, you and you are going to be standing out there with umbrellas over me. <laughs> okay, so I'm holding you responsible. But you're right. I thought about that. How, you know, you, you, you don't know what the weather's going to be like in Jacksonville in the middle of August. So, uh, uh, Murphy, in terms of the network thing, you're right. They may, uh, they could lose interest. But the fact is, what are they going to do? Shift to sports, shift to original programming. 
I mean, the fact is they're needing to they're needing to fill time too. Yeah, no, no, they will, but they're you know, when in doubt, the problem is cable news is every bit of trivia is the Hindenburg explosion. Every day is the biggest day in politics. Alarm bells going off, so they will find silly things to focus on. But net net, it should be good for Joe, and I think they're going to line it up right. And you know, the nice thing that they have is a new story to tell about Biden, who is not that well-known. Yes. So they do it right. It's not that hard. They just got to chew their food and then, of course, grind on Trump. So assuming that basic level of execution, I think, yeah, they should do fine. And Trump will, again, be Keystone Cops. You saw John Kasich is going to speak at the uh, at the Democratic convention? Yeah, it'll be a good hour. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> little Republicans, little Republican hissing there. No, I'm glad he's doing it. And uh, it, it'll be good. Do and, you think others will, others will step up? I don't know. I've, I've heard some rumors, not ready to break any news on Hacks on Tampa about that. But in the Republican Trump chasing world, we're, we're certainly talking about what might be doable. Well, I, I trust that if you do have news, you'll break it on Hacks on Tampa. Of course. Yes. But remember, the Democrats are going to stage this from not just one city, but all right. across America. And it's being put together with this this vision that we can bring the country together virtually and otherwise. So I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. No, Mike's right about one thing, though. The question is always how much of the actual convention will the networks cover and how much will they use uh, bloviators like the three of us? Mm to talk about what's going on during the programming. So the programming has to be interesting enough for them to want to to show it and not just talk about what's going on. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. So we're also, Donna, getting close to the VP selection. He's probably entering his the final stage, which would be him sitting down with, uh, with candidates. Uh, I- I'm interested in what your thoughts are about what he should be thinking about. Well, as you know, David, he's been through this process, so he understands it very well. Yeah. Uh, but look, um, based on what I've heard the vice president say, he is uh, down to a handful of candidates. Um, there are four black women still on the list, and I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited that we're going to see another woman on the uh, presidential ticket. And the prospect that the vice president will make a historic choice in selecting perhaps a black woman, I'm excited about that as well. I think uh, the reaction from not just uh, what they call the, the beltway types, the elite types, but I also think grassroots types, because as you well know, in the Democratic Party, uh, black women often lead the, the, the drive to turn out voters, to get people excited about the campaign and the candidates. And I think there will be a lot of disappointment. But, but at the end of the day, we know Joe Biden. We respect Joe Biden. And uh, we're going to support Joe Biden. But, yes, there will be a lot of people, including myself, who will be disappointed that he didn't give one of the many qualified black women qualified to be president an opportunity to serve alongside him. But with that disappointment, really change how hard you work for Biden versus Trump, because Trump is such an existential threat? Well, you know, every four years we get this this uh, notion that uh, the person who um, the opponent is is more evil. Um, look, I, I do believe that black women will continue to be 
engage and 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 support the vice president but again we're going to be disappointed we were disappointed in 1984 when not one black woman was under consideration although there were many who were qualified uh but we were excited to see geraldine ferrara on the ticket we were excited to see hillary clinton on the ticket uh as the leader of the ticket in 2016. so the excitement will be there for joe biden but clearly uh, to have someone who can help him expand the map and perhaps get more women of color and others excited about the ticket. Uh, we will lose that, but we'll try to make it up somewhere else. It was interesting yesterday when he was talking about this at some event, uh, he said, you know, there's going to be historic representation in his administration of women of color. And he talked about the Supreme Court and he talked about the cabinet. And it sounded a lot like he was leaving himself room here to make whatever decision. I, I don't suspect that he knows what decision he's going to make at this point, but he's definitely leaving his options open there. I thought that was... I hear it's Gina Raimundo. I think there's a lock now yes. for her. That's my prediction. <laughs> Best governor on the Democratic side in America. That's the other drinking game here, Donna, is he uh, Murphy promotes Gina Raimundo every show here. I don't know what you're going to do after the selection uh, to fill time. But I'm going to worry. Noted that Gina Raimondo <laughs> gets another uh, another push here. Do we think that Trump has bottomed out now? You know, the, there was a Fox News poll. Uh, Chris presented it to him on the air. He, the president, dis, you know, he dismisses every poll that has him behind as fake, and he dismissed this as fake. And by the way, Don expressed his displeasure about Fox News. You're probably one of the reasons why he's displeased about. Uh, Fox News these days. But this poll was actually a little bit narrower. There were some polls that Quinnipiac had Biden up 15 points. That seems large to me. Uh, but uh, this this Fox News poll had the race at 49-41. And that's sort of the average, Mike, of where we're at. And, you know, it was slightly less gaudy than the, the last poll they took. I think they had a nine or 10 points up marginal. But um, do we think we're at a trough here? I think close to it, but it almost doesn't matter. He is he is in the zone where if the election were held tomorrow, he'd lose, he'd lose bad, and he'd probably take the Senate down with him. And so that's about as bad as it gets in real impact. And so I guess the only question is, it could even get worse than this, but materially, it can't really cost any more pain than this. Can he come back? Will it tighten? And my guess is some of the convention messaging will will bring some voters back to him. But I, I'll be surprised if you ever see him ahead for the rest of the campaign. The question is, can he can he close the gap? And, it, 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 you know, he can some, but it looks tough. You know, one of the questions you get is about polling because polling was a little bit misleading in 2016, not nationally, but in some of these state polls. But, uh, I, you know, my sense is that the work has been done to sort of correct what was wrong there, uh, which is underrepresenting non-college educated white voters who weren't responding um, and weighting polls more readily to um, to, to education, uh, you know, rather, rather than some other indices. But, um, you know, I, I just don't think that... Um, I just don't think that methodological questions are enough to explain a nine point eight nine point gap. Yeah, here. no, absolutely. Uh, and again, you look at the demographics of it. He, 
you know, Repubs are eroding a bit. He's got all the, Biden has all the Democrats and the independents are breaking hard against him. So he needs big, massive stuff to happen. He needs a bad Biden debate. He needs a bad VP pick that changes the agenda in September. He needs a miracle COVID or economic comeback. I mean, he needs big macro things to happen. And if they don't, you know, he's in a pit and it's quicksand. He can't just flail his way out of it. There were two things that he hinted would happen. Now, you never know with Trump, uh, Donna, in that interview with Chris, uh, but Chris Wallace, but he um, he said uh, that he sort of hinted that there were going to be indictments of Obama-era officials relative to the Russia probe, which is the project that Barr has been working on, the attorney general, for months and months and months. Um, and uh, and the other was that he'd signed some executive orders. He seems to feel that, that he has new authority based on the, um, based on the, the Supreme Court's uh, ruling on DACA that he has new executive authority. I don't know if anybody else read that decision in quite that way, but he said he'll have a healthcare executive order that will, you know, the long promised healthcare alternative to, can either of these things, what are the effects of those things? I don't think they will change the trajectory of the race. I want to agree with Mike. Uh, if for whatever reason, the vice president is not, uh, up to up to speed on on those debates, uh, and if the conventions don't go off as planned, and the, and the VP nominee is not the right person, yeah, the race will tighten. But I still give Joe Biden a, a slight advantage, not only in the electoral college, but of course the popular vote, because they're just things are moving in a direction away from Trump. Trump has not shown any uh, capacity to enlarge his base or to even reach out. Uh, and we know the kind of campaign he's going to run this is similar to what he did in 2016, but there will probably be more online, uh, online uh, activity. I fail to see how Bill Barr will be able to bring any uh, charges against uh, uh, folks in the Obama administration over the handling of the Russian crisis, because, look, they tried to do everything possible to stop the type of interference that was happening. They tried to bring Congress on board. As you recall, in, on October 7th, when all of the intelligence agencies uh, put out that statement, a strong statement uh, about uh, the Russian interference. So I, I fail to see how any, any of the activity that Trump will take up will be seen as anything other than smoke and mirrors. But if he gets away with something, David, we'll have a Kickstarter for your legal defense fund because uh, you're, you're, you're too good looking to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I may. Uh, do you have a law degree? I may. You're a good talker. I may put you out there for me. I've got a Jerry Spence fringe buckskin outfit I'll wear in court, and I'll spring you. No worries. Trump's problem is this election is all about Trump, and people have made a judgment about Trump, and they don't like him. And the more he behaves like Trump, the more they're reminded how much they don't like him, particularly in the middle of a pandemic that he appears unwilling to acknowledge or confront in a in, in a uh, in a way that people would expect of a president. So he has to try and find a way to take Biden down. I think it's going to be a brutal three and a half months. But Biden has proved to be an elusive target so far. And I think, uh, you know, the betting odds are what the betting odds are right now. They're not good for Trump. And I think that, that that's for a reason. Let's take a minute for a commercial word, and then we'll be right back. It's Listener Mailbag. 
All right. Now, look, if you have a question for the Hacks and our, our, our fine guests, you can send them to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It really helps the show get the word out. So, David, what do you got? So Tanner writes in, and especially for you, Mike Murphy, he says, Mike, just for fun, if Biden were to pick a Republican for the VP slot, who would it be? He doesn't ask, but I know he's hinting at whether you're available. <laughs> I know he's not going to pick a Republican, but I'm tired of hearing the same revolving door name. So let's mix it up. Well, that is a great question, Tanner. And I am tempted to put my hat into the ring under the slogan, eliminate the middleman, cut out candidate prices. But uh, I think obviously the strongest would be Mitt Romney. Now we're breaking the Biden gender rule here, but we're in fantasy football land. And I would say because Mitt, even though he lost, ran ahead of Trump in those key Republican suburbs. So uh, he would play well there and it would send a message of uh, Republican courage. Uh, other interesting governors would be maybe Larry Hogan in Maryland, who's been very brave uh, on the Trump stuff. I think I think that's an interesting idea, too. Uh, you know, and maybe there's a notable Republican from kind of the the real world outside politics. But if, if I were Biden and I could get Mitt Romney, I would take him and I'd win. I think that is it. That that's from uh, fantasy camp. Well, that's the whole question. Yes, I know. That's from fantasy camp. First of all, if he picked a Republican, it would have to be a woman Republican. Well, right? it's, but it's fantasy camp. He could pick Captain Kirk in theory because it's not going to happen. I mean, <laughs> you got to get into the whole fantasy uh-huh. thing here, David. You got to. You, you got to. This is this is the land. Of I want to know about your fantasies. Puff the magic dragon. Right. That's my uh, third choice. All right, now <laughs> I got a question for you, David Axelrod, and then we're finished with our yes. guest hackeroo, Donna. This is from Riley, and Riley says, "I'm 22, just started working on the Hill, and I'm trying to develop good news and poll tracking habits." How can I track polling in D.C. news like a veteran political hack, especially in an age where you shouldn't believe so much of what you see online? So what, what's your advice, uh, David? Well, if you want to track it like a veteran political hack, you should probably do it at a bar when they open <laughs> up again. But that's uh, look, first of all, I, want, I applaud you uh, for being uh, on the Hill. You know, there's a lot that is discouraging about our politics today, but we really, really need people who are going to lean in and try and make things better. And the fact that you're up there and you've committed yourself to that is, uh, is really good. So good, good on you, Riley. Um, look, um, the, the things that I do on a daily basis is I look at the uh, real clear politics average of polling because polls can be, uh, they, they can be very uh, uh, variant. Some are right, some are wrong. And it's a good rule of thumb to average the polls together, and you generally get a good picture of where they're going. Nate Silver's 538, great place to go. They've got great data analysis and other analysis. Uh, I like that. Our friends over at the Cook Report, if you're looking at le- at the House and the Senate and you want to identify key races, uh, that's a good place to go. And, you know, look, there's a lot of really thoughtful political reporting being done um, not just at the, 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 the obvious places, the Post and the Times and, and the Journal, uh, but also uh, on various online sites. So 
but I think as a polling matter, those three places are a good place to start. I don't know what you guys look at. I would hallelujah on Real Clear Politics, and it's also a good aggregator of a lot of political news. On Twitter, Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report, our friend Excellent. Amy Walter, both Excellent. really cover the congressional and Senate side of the street well. You know, that you kind of graze that, but the uh, point I'll just make is, the thing about polls are they give you a great idea of what happened two weeks ago. So don't get polled drunk. Um, uh, take a look at what's going on forward and what the agenda of the debate is, and that often will predict which way the polls will go. But uh, good good for you, and enjoy it, Riley. Yeah. Donna, what do you watch? What do you look at? Like both of you, uh, real clear politics, because I like to get the sense of uh, the aggregate, the uh, as we say in Louisiana, I want the flavor, and every now and then I, <laughs> I, I look for the spice. I, I go outside of the <laughs> political spectrum and and see what what's uh, what's working in the cultural uh, winds of America. Because often uh, what's happening right now, you don't see it in the polls, but in a couple of weeks. So I try to look at some of the cultural stuff uh, by going outside of the political uh, realm. So Donna, we have a question here from Elizabeth who asks, wondering what happened to Mike Bloomberg and the millions he said he'd spent to help defeat Trump, no matter who the nominee was, figured if it couldn't be him, he'd be happy if it's Biden and not Sanders. Is, is the Bloomberg money flowing? I think uh, what, the, what the Bloomberg uh, folks are doing, um, they're focused on gun violence and climate change. So to the extent that he is still supporting uh, not just campaigns and, and um uh, uh, causes on those two issues he's doing that but as you know the, the strength of the bloomberg campaign i thought was the digital operation and if the digital operation can somehow another uh, be transported to help uh biden and those uh candidates out there on those two big issues then i think um, michael bloomberg will be a plus plus not just for joe biden but for the country itself i may be wrong about this but i think they actually are also working with the dnc the digital their digital operation and he's contributed some tens of millions to the DNC. But here's my prediction. I I, I think Bloomberg may do more uh, between now and November. He clearly uh, understands or or has a a strong conviction that Trump is the wrong uh, leader for the country. He has the wherewithal to do do something about it. He he wasn't uh, maybe in, in his own mind treated as well as he could have been in the Democratic primary nominating process. But Mike Bloomberg is he's got uh, uh, bigger things on his mind, I'm sure, uh, relative to the issues that he's worked on all his life. Uh, so I expect that you're going to see more of him uh, or at least more of his resources in this race between now and November. No, it would be welcome. Uh, he is helping uh, with the digital operation. But like I said, he had one of the strongest digital teams out yeah, there on did. the field. Um, and if he can help the Democrats in that area, that's an area where I think the Trump campaign has been uh, very successful in building an online army of people. I mean, they got more content out there than I've seen anywhere. So if the, if the Bloomberg operation can really just take over that, that part of the DNC operation, that would be a plus plus. I think he is in it for the right reasons and he wants to win and you're going to see more and more as the election crescendos. I, I'm, I'm of the same theory you are, David. Last call. Let's, let's dedicate our last call to the passing of an extraordinary American, John Lewis, uh, who, who died over the weekend or on Friday. Um, 
I had the opportunity to sit down with him for my Axe Files show on, on, on CNN in 2017. It was one of the most moving experiences that I've had listening to him talk about his life and um, thinking about the extraordinary uh, sacrifices that he made, even as a young man, risking his life again and again uh, just to, uh, to, to win the rights that should belong to every uh, American. And then weighing that against the humility of the man, uh, which was uh, just so palpable and uh, the decency of him. Don, I know you knew uh, John Lewis well. Uh, tell me what your thoughts are about him. You know, David, I got a chance to meet him. Uh, I was 22 and I had just been hired by Coretta Scott King to work on the King holiday effort and then later um, to work on the 20th anniversary of the historic March on Washington, the, the march where Dr. King gave his I have a dream speech, yeah. and I had a chance to meet Mr. Lewis, Eleanor Holmes, Norton, all of the SNCC folks, Marion Barry, and for a kid who grew up in the South, uh, getting to know Mr. Lewis not just as a, a trailblazer for civil rights, but also as just a dedicated public servant. You know, when I was a Hill staffer back in the day, uh, I would go over to his office in the afternoon in the Cannon Building, and Mr. Lewis always had... Uh, uh, peanuts and Coca-Cola, and we were just sitting shoot the breeze. But I got to tell you something. I, I, I saw my sister sent me a, a small uh, photo yesterday. It was a photo of uh, Barack Obama embracing John Lewis after he was sworn in. Uh, and as he was walking back up the stairs, he saw Mr. Lewis, he hugged him, and my sister was right above it. But the, the part of that story that I was able to tell my nieces and nephews is that when I got there that morning at six o'clock to, to help out with all of the, the seating, Mr. Lewis was there uh, along with Ted, former Senator Ted Kennedy. And Mr. Lewis said, why don't we move these chairs over? Because he noticed that the NAACP, the Urban League, all of those chairs were behind members of Congress. And he said, why don't we put the chairs together? That was John Lewis. John Lewis was just an extraordinary man, a humble man. He was. But he was just a good soul, and we must dedicate our lives now to Bowdoin and to finishing up uh, his legacy on Bowdoin rights. He was a man of incredible moral courage, and for that he'll be remembered. Uh, he got to see the world change, and he was part of it, and of course there's more to be done. So I say more good trouble. Amen. As we go out, Mike, I want to say goodbye to you guys. Until next week, uh, Mike and Donna, we hope you come back often. I'd love to play just a, a, a little bit of that conversation I had with John Lewis as we go out today. Donna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. We would go to the, the waiting room, or go to the restroom, go to the lunch counter, and people would from time to time attack you, beat you. We were left lying in a pool of blood. And many years later, David, a few days after President Obama was inaugurated, one of the guys that beat us came to my office in Washington and said, Mr. Lewis, I've been a member of the Klan. I beat you. I want to apologize. Will you forgive me? He started crying. I said, I forgive you. I accept the apology. They hugged me. I hugged them back. So hearts can change. Hearts can change. And, and we shouldn't ever give up on anyone. <laughs>